From Cross Culture Church in Raleigh, this is Crosswalk. In Pastor Clay's absence this week, our worship pastor, John Spolino, continues with the Jesus, the Real Action Hero series and a message entitled, The Humility of the Son of Man, asking the questions, who is God and what does it mean to be God's people? Join us now by opening your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45. We're glad you've joined us this week. Now here's Pastor John. If you're new to Cross Culture Church, let me just, while you're finding it, let me introduce myself. My name is John Spolino. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and I'm just so glad that you came, and I hope that this worship service is a blessing to you. Before we begin and before we dive into this text, I want to lay some foundation. I want to lay a framework that we can work from, okay, uh, that will help us not only when we approach this text this morning, but it's going to help us as we approach any text of Scripture. Uh, you know, when you're building a house, the foundation's the most important. If your foundation's off, then everything else is off, okay? And so you have to have the foundation right. And so this is the foundation. This is the framework in which we are going to come to this text, and I would say any text in Scripture, that the Bible answers two fundamental questions. There's two questions that the Bible is trying to answer. It's trying to communicate. And those two questions are this. Who is God? And the second is, what does it mean to be God's people? The first, who is God, is the primary question that the Bible's trying to answer. Who is he? What are his attributes? What are his characteristics? Uh, Who is God the Father? Who is Jesus, the Son of God? Who is the Holy Spirit? What are their plans and purposes and roles in our lives? That, That all falls under who is God. And then you have the second question, what does it mean to be God's people? So you see, uh, what is it, who, who can make up God's people? Who can be a part of God's people? What is their mission? What, God, what does God have for them to do? What does God desire for them to do? And so this all falls under, what does it mean to be God's people? And we can see this throughout Scripture. Now let's just think about this. Let's start back in Genesis. Who is God? We see Him as the Creator, and He creates this, uh, this world perfect. He's loving, He's kind, He's compassionate, He's creative, and He creates this whole entire world perfectly. And then he creates mankind, but guess what? It was short-lived and mankind fell. But God then shows us how far he's willing to go to redeem those, to bring us back. And in Genesis 3, he promises a Savior. He promises one who's going to come and who's going to be able to complete, restore what was severed when we fell. And the whole entire Old Testament answers this question, who's this one who's going to come? Who's this Savior? And what we see is people, notable people throughout the Old Testament. Is it going to be David? Is it going to be Joseph? Oh, maybe it's Abraham. But guess what? They all died. And so for the whole entire Old Testament, they're looking, they're searching for this one who has come, who's going to restore our relationship with God. Then finally, in Matthew 1.1, probably the best verse in the Bible. Well, they're all good. But this is one that's really good. It says, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Pinpoint, spotlight, focal point. He has come, and it is Jesus. So now in the New Testament, they ask the same question, but with a different emphasis. Remember in the Old Testament, it's who's this one who's going to come? Now it's who's this one who's come, right? And so now they're talking about Jesus. They're talking about his plans and what he has done. He's talking about his miracles. He's talking about how God used Jesus as his part to redeem us, to bring us back to him. 
And so this is what we see throughout Scripture, is them looking towards Jesus, and then the New Testament uh, telling us what Jesus was, telling us about Jesus. It's the story of Jesus' life. And so the Bible answers these two questions. Who is God, and what does it mean to be God's people? So, follow me here. If the Bible is supposed to answer those two questions, when we come to any text, what, is the question, what are the questions that we answer, or we ask? What does it say about God, and what does this mean for us? What does God expect from us from this passage? What does God want us to know from this passage? So that's how we're going to come to this text this morning. We're going to ask these two questions. What is this saying about God, and what does God expect from us from this passage? And when you look at the Scripture in this framework, with this foundation, you start to see a theme. For instance, two weeks ago, we talked about the little children coming to Jesus. And remember, the disciples shouldn't be in children's ministry because they got upset at Jesus. I mean, they got upset at the children for slobbering all over Jesus. And they're like, no, you can't come to Jesus like that. But Jesus like, no, let them come. And what we see about God is that Jesus, that Jesus extends his grace and extends his mercy there. What we see, that what God wants from us, is that he wants us to come to him with a nothingness. Knowing that there's nothing that we can do that we just need to take God's gift and tear it open like a child would, right? We don't need to barter with Jesus. And so he gives us his gift, and we need to come to him with the nothingness. But we tend to think that Jesus was just this good suggestion giver. And so when he pulls the disciples close and throughout all the Gospels, and he says, you know what, you need to come to, come to me with the nothingness. We tend to think there's a caveat there, but it's just a suggestion. You can really do what you want. But that's the problem. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, if you want to follow me, if you want to be my believer, you must come to me with a nothingness. You must come to me with nothing. And you must accept this gift that I'm giving you freely. So that's what we see here. If you remember last week, we mentioned the rich young ruler. And on every level, this guy was it. You know, he was, had wealth, he had leadership potential, you know, he probably had, you know, he's tall, dark, and handsome, which I am one of three of, and I'll let you figure out which one that is. Um, and uh, th- this is the guy, I man, he is it. And he comes to Jesus, and he has everything except for one thing, submission, the willingness to submit to God, to Jesus. And so what we see from God last week, what what we saw from Jesus last week, was that he longs for people to come to him, but he also longs for people to follow him. And we see what he means for us as God's people, as followers of him. He expects us to come to him with the willingness to submit. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to uh, look at this text and answer these two questions. And I'm going to, I'm going to, Uh, propose that what this says about God is that he is more loving, more kind, more gracious, and more humble than you and I can ever imagine. And that he, Jesus, is the ultimate example of humility. This morning we're going to see that humility and service are linked together. And then we're going to see this morning for us that Christ, God, desires for us to mimic his humility in our lives. And so that's where we're going this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verse 32 is where we're starting. If you don't have uh, God's word, it's going to be behind, behind me as well. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. 
And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Verse 35. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism which I am to be baptized? But to sit on my right hand, or excuse me, And they responded to him, saying, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those whom it's been prepared. 41. Hearing this, the other ten disciples began to feel indignant with James and John. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So this morning what we're going to do is we're going to look at this passage in light of that framework. So the first thing we're going to ask this morning is, what does it say about God? We see that they're heading up to Jerusalem and there's some people who are following him who are afraid. Some of them were amazed. And Jesus jumps into this passion prediction. Uh, This is not his first passion prediction, talking about his death, um, his trial, and his rising again. So this is not the first time. We see that two more times in Mark 8 and Mark 9. And within these passion predictions, there's a lot of similarities, but there's also a lot of differences. The difference is being that in this particular passage, we see it more in depth. He talks about the place. He details the place, Jerusalem. He talks about who's going to do it, the chief elders and the scribes. He goes in more detail about how they're going to mock him and spit on him. But to truly understand what this is saying about God, we, we don't need to look at the similarities. What we need to look at, or at the differences, we need to look what's, what's the similarities between them. And the first similarity and the greatest similarity is this, the title, the Son of Man. This title, Son of Man, was used 85 times in the New Testament. 84 times it was used in the gospel, okay? So outside of the gospel, it's only used one other time in Acts. 85 times in total in the New Testament. And what we see are phrases like this. The Son of Man must suffer. The Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of men. The Son of Man came to save the lost. The Son of Man is the one who sows the good seed. The Son of Man, the Son of Man, we see it 84 times in the gospel, once outside. But the the uniqueness of this title is not in its frequency of usage, it's in who referred to Jesus in this way. See, the only person, except for that one in Acts, the only person who calls Jesus the Son of God, or Son of Man, is Jesus himself. It was his favorite term to talk about himself. He loved calling himself the Son of Man. And when we think of this term, we think, okay, you know, he's a son of a guy. You know, he's a son of man, mankind. And we don't have this rich 
Old Testament study under our belts. We didn't grow up in a family that devoted themselves to learning the Old Testament. And so what we must do is we must go back to Daniel chapter 7, where this term was first introduced, to understand what is really being said about Jesus here. And so I've, I, I'm going to have the scripture um, behind me. We're going to look at Daniel 7, verse 13. But I want to give you a little bit of background real quick. Daniel's having this vision. We did a Daniel study a couple years ago. But, uh, so you can go back to listen to this vision. But he has this vision and he sees God. He sees the Ancient of Days sitting up there on his, throes, his throne and he's in glory. And it's beautiful. It's amazing. I mean, it's power, glory, dominion. This is what Daniel is seeing. He's awestruck. And finally, he gets to, in, in Daniel 7, verse 13, he says this. I kept looking in the night visions and behold, the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So when we hear this about the Son of Man in Daniel 7, we need to look at two different things for us to understand what this is saying about God in Mark 10. The first is this. He's the Son of Man riding on the clouds. We would not be incorrect to say the Son of Man is emphasizing his humanity. Because it is. It's emphasizing God, Jesus, as 100% man. But... The depiction of him riding on the clouds was only a term, was only a description of deity. It was only used of somebody who was God. So right now in Daniel 7, he's saying that God is both 100% man and 100% God. He is both. And we have to ask the question, why did he have to be 100% man and 100% God? As you remember, the Old Testament points to Jesus, and so does what God did for his people. If you remember, God created this world perfectly, and we fell. And God's purpose for his people was to worship him and to be in a relationship with him. But we fell, and as I say, God prepared and made a promise that there was one who's going to come. But in the meantime, God gave them a system of laws and commandments and a system of repentance where each year they would sacrifice some animals to cover their sins. And every year they had to do this. Why? Because the animals weren't perfect. This is the first sign, this is a foreshadowing, that we need a perfect Savior. And so what we see from the Old Testament and the people is that God is concerned with His people. He's concerned with with their salvation. So He gives them this until the one who's going to come. And so we see he's 100% man and 100% God. 100% man because he needs to relate with us. 100% God because guess what? We needed that perfect Savior, that perfect sacrifice. Remember I told you that they looked at people like David and Joseph and Abraham, all these people, they thought maybe the one. Even though they all died, guess what? They were all imperfect. They were not perfect, not perfect, not perfect. And in the garden... Guess what? We were made perfect. Perfect in communion with God. But when we fell, we became imperfect. So what do we need now? We need a perfect Savior who's going to make us perfect. 
And what Jesus does in his sacrifice on the cross for us, being the animal, the lamb that was sacrificed, is now that Jesus looks at us and no longer does he see imperfection. He sees right standing before God. He sees someone like he sees his own son, Jesus. Now, this is not to say that we don't struggle because we certainly do. And we're definitely not perfect. But the Lord Our Father sees us like he sees Jesus. So that's why we need this perfect Savior. We need 100% God to save us, and we need 100% man to be able to relate with us. And so Daniel here is saying, look at this. Look at this Son of Man. He's God-man, God with us. 100% God, 100% man. But the next thing we need to see is this in verse 14. He says, excuse me, And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. What what does it say about Jesus, the Son of Man? He's fully God, fully man. But his proper place is for us to serve him. We need to start recognizing that the Son of Man, Jesus, our Savior, his proper place is for us to worship him. Our position before God is for us to bow before him, to serve him, and to worship him. You may have seen a viral video that has gone pretty big in the past two days of a popular, probably the most popular uh, religious pastor in America. And him and his wife are on stage, and basically his wife just says, you know what, you don't come to church to worship God, you come to church to worship yourself. You come to church... Because God wants to make you happy. And so when you make yourself happy, you make God happy. At Cross Culture, we always say that God's more concerned with your holiness than your happiness. And also we say that God is the one who deserves the worship and not us. And so when we come to this passage, we see Jesus in his rightful place for us to be worshipped. For us to worship him. Just think about this. The God-man, 100% God, 100% man, is now the one who's come here to earth to be with us. So if his proper place is to be worshipped, we need to jump back when we read in our scripture today in Mark 10 when it says, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered, into the, 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 delivered to the chief priests and to the scribes and they will condemn him. They will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him and scorch him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. That doesn't make sense. It would make sense for us if we were the disciples to say, no, 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 Jesus, you do not know what you're talking about. The Son of Man is both God and man. He's supposed to be the one that's lifted up. He's the one that's supposed to be served. He's the one that's supposed to be worshipped. He's not the one who's supposed to be despised and rejected and killed and scorned. That is not how it's supposed to go. And so this makes sense. Why, in the first passion prediction in Mark chapter 8, Peter rebukes Jesus. Jesus says, I'm going to be delivered into the hands of men. I must suffer. And Peter says, no, you're wrong, Jesus. That's not the proper place for the Son of Man. And Jesus tells Peter, hey, Satan, get behind me. All right, he calls him Satan. It makes sense that Peter, though, was like, no, that's not the case. It makes sense in Mark chapter 9 with his second prediction that the disciples are afraid to ask Jesus about it. Because they're probably all thinking, remember the last time we asked Jesus about it? He called Peter Satan. I don't want to be called Satan. And so they don't, they don't, they don't ask Jesus about it because they're afraid. 
But it makes sense. Why? It makes sense while people were following Jesus up to Jerusalem and there was those who were afraid and those who were amazed. Because they're thinking on one hand, look at this son of man, but on the other, do you hear what he's talking about being delivered into the hands of men? What's going to happen? And so this makes sense. What doesn't make sense is Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. That doesn't make sense. That the man who has the highest position, the highest authority, who has every right to be worshipped, instead comes down and serves. That doesn't make sense. What makes sense is God being worshipped. This reminds me of a passage in Philippians. Probably the first, I think it's the first Christian hymn to ever be written, sung by the early church fathers, the early, the early church. It says this, Philippians, it's not going to be on the screen, so just listen up. Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And I propose that it's because of this, that this Son of Man, for this very reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is the Son of Man. He was lifted high because he came down and he served. And what we see here is that Jesus is not humble because he decided not to boast about himself. We tend to think that's what humility is, just not boasting. But Jesus was not humble because he didn't boast about who he was because he was very clear. I'm the son of man. I'm the son of God. I'm the one you've been waiting for. Humility is much more than boasting. Jesus was, the, was humble because in light of who he was, he de- decided to serve instead of be served. He wasn't humble because he didn't boast about himself. He was humble because being himself, he decided to serve. And so here what we see is that humility is more than just not boasting. There is an intrinsic link with, between being humble and serving. It is this idea that God came down, and not only came down, but he decided to serve. So what is this passage? And it's when we look at this passage and we say, okay, what is this saying about God? We must look at this and think, wow, God is much more gracious, more loving, more humble than we can ever imagine because the God-man came down and he served. So what does this mean for us? What does God expect from his people? So look at, let's look at that second focus, that second question. We see that Jesus gives his passion prediction, and then what do James and John do, the sons of Zebedee? They ask him a question. Wouldn't you think that the proper response to hearing Daniel 7 and hearing the Son of Man would be to worship him? But look, look what they say, John, uh, James and John, verse 35. This two sons of Zebedee came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. How does Jesus respond? This is important. He said to them, what do you want me to do for you? 
In that statement alone, we can see exactly why the Son of Man came to this earth. He's telling James and John, what can I do for you? I'm here to serve. Verse 37, they said to him, Grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? They said to him, We're able. Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized. But to sit on the right hand or on my left, it's not mine for me to give, but for those whom it's been prepared. So what we see here, James and John, also known as the Sons of Thunder, I always think that would be a sweet name for twins. Um, you know, James and John, Sons of Thunder. Anyways, I think that's awesome because they had a quick temper, okay? They, they, were, they were quick to get angry. And we see James and John coming up to Jesus saying, Jesus, we want to sit on your right and on your left in your glory. On one hand, we have to affirm James and John because they understood Daniel chapter 7, that Jesus deserves the kingdom, the glory, the honor. So they understood that. They're saying, Jesus, we want that. We want to be on your right and on your left. But we also have to rebuke James and John a little bit because they're being selfish. They're saying, listen, Jesus, we want a part of that glory. We want a part of that kingdom. We want to be on your right and on your left. Can I just mention something real quick? In Acts, remember I talked to you, talked to you about how the Son of Man is only referenced one more time in the New Testament? In Acts, it's at the stoning of Stephen. And Stephen, if you remember this, he's the first martyr, and he looks up and he says, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. A place of importance, a place of authority. That's exactly what James and John are asking for. We want that place of authority. We want to be at your right and your left. And Jesus says, you guys can't handle it. All right, you just can't. He says, you will suffer for me and you will be persecuted for me, but you can't handle it. And then he jumps into an illustration. And it says this in... in, in, uh, 41 it says hearing this the other 10 became indignant with james and john calling them to himself jesus said to them you know those who recognize as rulers of the gentiles lorded over them the great men exercise authority over them but it's not this way among you but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be a slave to all for even the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and give his life a ransom for many so jesus looks at his disciples he's like, listen, I know you guys want to be great. Or I know you guys want the power and the position. The reason why the ten disciples got angry at James and John were not because what James and John asked was inappropriate. They were angry because they beat him to the punch. They wanted to be on the right and the left of Jesus. But, they, but James and God, John got to it first. So they were, just, they were angry at them. Listen, Jesus knows that in Mark chapter 9, when he made his passion prediction, that all of them started arguing about who was the greatest among them. Jesus knows their heart and knows what they want. And so what Jesus says is, let me tell you a story about how the Gentiles rule over people. They exercise their greatness, their authority, their power. They say, give me this, give me that. Hey, you run this errand. Go grab me some coffee. Hey, come on, do this. He says, but not, this is not the way it's supposed to be about, about you, among you. If you want to follow me, what you need to do is serve. Just think about this. God came down to serve. What he's asking his people, his followers of Jesus, is saying, listen, you have the keys of the kingdom in your hands. You have the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power to change this world. You're not to go around bashing people with it. What you're supposed to do is go around and share the love of Jesus by serving, being humble and serve. Defend your faith, but serve. And so this is what uh, he's getting at here. 
listen, I've only been married for three months, so I know it's not a long time, but I am convinced about one thing. 98% of the time, Amber's wrong. I'm just kidding. Uh, 98% of the time, I'm wrong, okay? Uh, But on the off chance, I'm right for the 2%. I had to think to myself, how am I relating to Amber? Am I serving her when I disagree with her? Am I considering her needs before my own? Because this is what this passage means for those of us who follow Jesus. For husbands, it means this. When you disagree with your wife, and you're right, for the off chance that you're right, (laughs) do you, barring that it is not against God's will, do you serve her needs before your own? When God has called you to be the leader of your home, do you serve her like that? Because this is what he's saying here. Leadership, his leadership, the way he sees his, his kingdom, is that if you want to be a leader, men, we are the leaders of our family. If you want to be a leader, what do you have to do? Humble yourself and serve. Serve her needs before your own. Wives, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to listen to your husband, follow your husband, cherish your husband, serve your husband. When your husband's wrong, barring that it's not against God's will, do you humble yourself and serve him? Do you love him, cherish him, even on the off chance that he's wrong? Those of us in this room who've ever had anger or bitterness towards somebody, what do you do? Do you hold on to that bitterness? Do you hold on to that anger? Or do you humble yourself? Whether you're right or you're wrong, do you humble yourself? And do you serve? Do you love that other person? Do you try to make amends with that other person? Whether or not they return that or not, do you do, you do that? Christians, followers of Jesus, do you submit to Jesus? Jesus asks us to humble ourselves and to serve him. When we come to passages of Scripture where we may disagree with him on the onset, do we just say, Lord, I'm bowing my, my will to your word and what you have to say? Even if I disagree with it, Lord, will you show me why you have this? Why you want this from me? Do you submit to his word? Do you humble yourself and submit to his word, serve his word? Those of you in this room who don't know Jesus, will you humble yourself knowing that there's nothing you can do to earn your way to God? But it's because of this Son of Man, it's because he came down to serve, that you have the ability to serve. You have the ability to live for God. You have the ability to now enjoy this relationship with God. Because of Jesus, no longer is there a separation between us and God. No longer are we held to that place. Because because of Jesus, he is now said that the, to- the veil is torn. Gentile and Jew, anybody can come to me. All you have to do is bow yourself before me. Recognize me as the Son of Man. And this is how it works in the Christian life. The more you see and recognize and realize the Son of Man, the more you see his humility, the more you see his service in your life, the more you grab hold of that and see that, it starts to work in your heart. And what you start to see from your life is humility and service. Husbands and wives in this room, I don't know if you're going through a difficult time in your marriage or not, But I know this, at first it's going to be very difficult to humble yourself and to serve. But the more you see Christ, the more you see him as the son of man, the more you're able to humble yourself and to serve. Teenagers, yeah, that's right. You don't know everything. I know you think you do. 
but you don't know anything. Well, you don't know anything. You don't know everything. <laughs> Teenagers, what this means for you, will you humble yourself, serve your parents, serve them, listen to them, see what you can do for them? The reason why this is one of the greatest characteristics in the Christian life is because it influences every area of life. Whether it's your marriage, your household, whatever you do at school, your workplace, everywhere, humility and service are, are linked with that. As I said, in order to have humility and service just flow from your life, you must recognize Jesus as the Son of Man. James and John, the sons of thunder, that's what happened to them. James was the, or excuse me, John was the last apostle to die. And in his life, he would be jailed, he would suffer, he was ordered to execution by Emperor Domitian by boiling oil. All right, that's worse than beheading, being dipped in boiling oil. But he survived. Then he was exiled to the island of Patmos. And it's interesting that when you look at John's life and his later writings, specifically in 1 John, what you see is this theme. Love one another. Serve one another. Humble yourself. If you're a follower of God, you will love God and you will serve and want, love one another. We see that. This was a man. This, I mean, just think about it. That doesn't sound like the John we read about this morning. We want the glory. No, no longer. Love one another. John saw the Son of Man, recognized the Son of Man, and it worked into his life and outflowed within his actions and his writings. Likewise, it's fitting that James would be the first apostle to be martyred. And tradition holds that he was falsely testified against and that his accuser, the one who lied, walked James to the chopping block where he was beheaded. But before he was beheaded, it said that the accuser saw James' countenance. He noticed the way that James loved. He noticed the way James spoke. And he specifically noticed that James, before he went to the chopping block, said, I forgive you. This doesn't sound like the James you read about this morning. It doesn't sound like the James who was the son of thunder, who wanted the glory for himself. No, this was the James who recognized and understood in a deep way Love the Son of Man. This was one who allowed the Son of Man and his, his example to come into his life so that his life now can reflect that exact truth. So what does this passage this morning in Mark 10 tell us about God? What does this tell us about Jesus? It tells us that he humbled himself in the greatest act of humility in all of human history. It tells, that, it tells us that he is humble and shows what shows us what humility is supposed to be, linked with service. And this passage this morning tells us as his people, what does God expect from us? He expects us to mimic humility. He expects us to humble ourselves and serve. I wonder what this church, what this city of Raleigh, what your families would look like if every member who said, hey, I follow Jesus, followed the example of the Son of Man and served. I think we would see this world change. We asked our youth on this past Thursday at our youth group, do you think there can ever be an explosion of evangelism, an explosion of people coming to Christ 
in Raleigh, like we saw in Acts, like we see in Acts. Majority of the responses was no. I don't think that can happen. I think it can. And I think it starts with this, humility. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning at Cross Culture Church. We gather every week in a casual and contemporary atmosphere and celebrate the goodness of our God. Cross Culture may be a little different from what you're thinking. Sure, we're a church, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. A community of believers where Jesus is revealed in the lives of each person. Real people who truly care. Solid biblical teaching from Pastor Clay Stevens. And the most energetic, safe, and fun kids program around. Find out more at crossculturelife.org. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross.